Hello, I'm Howard. Welcome to a bonus podcast ahead of City's rather tricky Monday night trip to Sellers Park. Uh, I'd like to be joined by Palace fan Dan, who, if you're on Twitter, social media channels, you may know better as HLTCO. Good morning, Dan. How are you doing? How are you doing, Howard? You all right? Yeah, I've got those letters in the right way. <laughs> yeah, you have. Everyone always sort of like they stumble through it, and I think they're gonna they're gonna get it wrong. But now you you got it spot on, so you're all good. <laughs> Going in my head, Hopkin booking too. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, just I know we've had had you on before, but uh, you explained it last time. That's that relates to the nineteen ninety seven playoff correct. final. Yeah, correct. It was against uh, Sheffield United, last minute, twenty five yards out. Terrible game of football for all <laughs> intents and purposes. But he swung his foot at it and put it top corner, and that piece of immortal commentary was born, and and so the uh, name of the podcast and the Twitter page. Yeah, can't beat a bit of late uh, playoff drama, can you? So, yeah, as long yeah. as it goes your way. <laughs> yeah, cool. well, we've both been lucky on that. For, yeah, I just think, uh, yeah, they had the uh, Gillingham playoff on Sky the other day. Mm. And it's amazing how much that game is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> really you terrible. don't really think about it during the game because there's so much emotion involved. Yeah. So it just comes down to that moment that you remember, doesn't it? But you wouldn't re-watch the whole game. I mean, no. nothing, until 80 minutes, there's, there's, yeah, there's early drama a bit and there's not a lot going on until late in the game where it totally kicks off. So, yeah, you just I mean, we, we've won three of them and I think all three of the finals have been pretty terrible, to be fair. Yeah, so, the stakes are so high, aren't they, sir? Mm. Uh, before, anyway, before we talk about Palace and the game coming up and, well, and your, the season so far, uh, just... What remind people, obviously, yeah, say I had you on before, uh, what you do and how your Patreon channel's going for those that don't know uh, what it is that you do now, which I hope is still full-time for you now. Yeah, it's full-time. It's been full-time since September 2020, I think. So it's, it's getting on for a year and a half-ish. Um, basically, I did a daily Crystal Palace podcast for about six to eight months every day, Monday to Friday. Uh, and was aiming to get to a thousand patrons so that I could quit my job mm. and go full time. Uh, when I managed to reach that total, which sort of occurred from 700 patrons to a thousand over the course of 24 hours, it was a bit bonkers. Um, I sort of realized that a lot of the people that had signed up for the podcast were just sort of doing it out of a sense of goodwill rather than being Crystal Palace fans. And I sort of knew that I would need to diversify exactly what I was producing day to day to keep them on board for the long term. So I've started recording or did start recording in September of 2020, a daily Palace podcast every morning and a daily general football podcast every weekday morning as well, which rounds up everything that's going on across England, across Europe and any major stories that happen to be floating around. And, you know, it's, it's going pretty well. So, you know, hopefully, touch wood, I can carry on doing this for the foreseeable future and not go back to the realms of nine to five work for somebody else. Do you find it difficult having to get it out first thing in the morning? Um, what's, what's the reasoning before doing it first thing in the morning? You think it's good that someone has, that people have content? Is it like for people going into work and stuff like that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, to be honest with you, without wanting to sound too corny about it, I always wanted a, a podcast that was relatively short anyway, from my own personal yeah. perspective as a football fan, because I feel as though, especially daily pods, if they're 45 minutes to an hour, you get behind and then you think, oh, I haven't listened to it for two or three days. It's too much to catch up on. Whereas I like to think that mine is sort of a bite-sized version. And, you know, when the BBC do their uh, Euro or World Cup daily podcast, that sort of format where you can wake up in the morning, 
you know it's there, rain or shine, and, and you can just be caught up. If you've been out or you haven't been able to watch the football the day before, you can know exactly what's happened and be informed by, I mean, I always get them out by 8.30 in the morning so that if people want to listen to them before they work or on their way to work or on their lunch break, they can, you know, go about their day and know yeah. it's there for them rather than having to wait till three or four in the afternoon when, you know, it's pretty much old news by that stage. Cool. Yeah, I guess if you put it out later in the day, then it becomes less topical in a way because people have mm. got the information from elsewhere. So so you cover everything, don't you? Do- pretty much, yeah. I mean, as I say, Mondays are... Uh, English football over the course of the previous weekend. Tuesdays are La Liga, uh, Bundesliga, Serie A and Ligue 1 alongside anything that's taking place in England on a Monday night. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday tends to be a bit of a mishmash depending on what's going on. Obviously, you know, there's plenty with Roman Abramovich and, and that whole situation at the moment to get my yeah. team stuck into if I've ever got a, a sort of gap in the footballing schedule. So, yeah, I mean, people always say to me, are you sure you're going to have enough content from day to day? Football's just a never-ending soap opera, so I don't ever struggle to, to fill the time, if you know what I mean. Not even during an international break. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, the, the one thing that I am slightly not concerned about, just have to differentiate it a bit, is this summer, because obviously... Yeah. The, there's no tournament and it will be the first time doing a daily football podcast where I haven't had a tournament to cover over a summer. So, you know, I'm sure I will find plenty to talk about and I'm trying to sort of line up interviews with prominent people now sort of in advance of the summer so that there's still a decent chunk of content there. But yeah, it's going to certainly test my uh, powers of, of entertainment, I guess. Yeah, how it is for us as well. <laughs> well, <it's>, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, normally uh, it's normally odd years summers, isn't it? But yeah. 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 Well, this year with the whole World Cup in the uh, winter, it's, it's, you know, a bit of a, a mad one. That would, the Nations League will see us through, whatever's on. So. Yeah, all the transfer sagas involving God knows who. Yeah. All right, should we talk Palace then? Cause, yeah, let's do that. No, I'll just say Patrick Vieira once said hello to me in the corridors at City's Academy, so he's... He's supposedly a lovely man. So instantly, he's a, a hero of mine for doing that. Yeah, he's a lovely man. So just name dropping already. Uh, not that he knew who I was, obviously. I was just walking past him. But what what were your honest thoughts? Because so he was at New York City, Fiera. Uh, uh, I think he did. You know, he did all the training stuff at City in the background, but mm. then moved to New York City as part of City Group. Nice was it where he was at? His yeah. record is. I mean. Let's be honest, you're not going to go to New York City and Nice and expect to tear it up and win everything that's available. So it's hard to judge him. But your honest thoughts when he was announced as manager, were you excited or were you quite cautious or going into the unknown? I think it has to be sort of put alongside the, the managerial saga that we had with Lucien Favre because I don't know how closely you or your listeners followed that over the summer. Mm. But there's a man there that's got ridiculous pedigree in terms of European football and, and standing within the game. And over the course of about four or five days, it looked to all intents and purposes as though he was going to become Crystal Palace's manager to the point where the work permit process had already been started and he'd given a verbal okay to say he was going to become Crystal Palace manager. So I and many other Palace fans were over the moon at that prospect. That then collapsed over the course of 24 hours and, and left us all down in the doldrums, really, because... We had this squad that was ageing, that needed a huge turnover of players. The, the playing style under Roy Hodgson wasn't exactly the most aesthetically pleasing or uh, stable. And then you get Patrick Vieira coming in. And whilst, of course, he's a Premier League legend and he's got all of the reputation that comes with his time at Arsenal as an invincible and as France captain, etc., etc., 
the, the sort of managerial roles that he'd had previously at, at New York City and Nice, they didn't necessarily scream problems, but it was an undoubted gamble from mm. Steve Parrish and one that, I mean, personally, and I'm glad that in a weird way, I'm sort of on the right side of history with this because when it was announced, there were lots of Palace fans throwing a baby out of the bathwater saying it was a terrible decision, saying that we'd, you know, rushed it because the Lucian father thing had fallen through. And I was just saying to them, you know, this is an unknown. This is a, a prospect of a situation where we could completely change the style of play. And if it works in the long term, we will be far better off for it rather than just lurching from one manager to another, trying to firefight. And thankfully, you know, we're sitting here now in mid-March and, you know, we're near the top half of the table. We were until last night when um, Aston Villa got that win. Uh, and, you know, in an FA Cup quarter-final, but apart from anything else, the style of football is, is just so much more enjoyable to watch. And I think there's a real long-term hope that he can put down some solid roots, potentially be our manager for two, three, four years and take us to a level that we haven't previously been able to reach in terms of our stability within the division. So, yeah, it's just a, a very good time to be a Palace fan, really. Was it the right side for Archon to move on? Was there a kind of a relief and an acceptance for Palace fans that, yeah, it was time for a change? I mean, I, the Roy Hodgson thing is something that seems to divide people outside of our fan base a lot more than ours because mm. when he arrived it was after Frank de Boer that was an experiment that went badly wrong for all sorts of reasons that I won't get into now but obviously he was relieved of his duties very very quickly yeah. uh, when he arrived we'd either lost four or five straight at the beginning of the season we actually went seven I think without picking up a single point and then he really did stabilise the ship we ended up finishing 11th or 12th in his first year and then obviously he spent three and a half years at the club and we were the absolute model of consistency. We didn't have any real worries about relegation. But at the same time, it was very much square pegs in square holes. The age of the squad was was creeping up every year with a lot of players out of contract. And Roy, you know, I don't mean to sound ageist at all, but you've got a 73, 74-year-old boss. He's not going to be there for the long haul, regardless of how he feels in himself. You know, it's just not good succession planning to assume that someone of that age is going to be Crystal Palace manager for another five years. So from our point of view, his contract expired at the end of last season. And I think it was just, you know, everyone was on the same page. that It was the right time for him to leave and for us to go in a different direction. And I don't think there's many Crystal Palace fans that have genuine, you know, dislike of him or, or think ill of him. But yeah. I think at the same time, there was a real acceptance across our fan base that he'd served us well, but it was a very opportune moment, I suppose, to, to part ways and try and go in a different direction. And thankfully that's worked out. So I think it's fair to say that Vieira's won over those who doubted him. I mean, yeah, there, there yeah. are a few. There are there are still a few that seem really? he's on just this purple patch. There's, there's a situation at the moment with Abir Eze and Conor Gallagher that for some reason has sparked a section of our fan base on social media to not have a go at Vieira, but to feel as though he's not handling it as well as he could. Because you've got Eze coming back off a very long-term Achilles issue that he sustained at the end of last season and not really getting minutes. And you've got Conor Gallagher, who of course isn't our player, he's on loan from Chelsea. And there are a certain section of our fan base that want to see Eze put into the starting eleven and potentially, you know, at the expense of Conor Gallagher. I'm not necessarily one of them. I think 
Connor is a ridiculously talented footballer and someone that has an outrageous amount of energy, which is sort of key for, for Patrick Vieira's midfield. But you will always get, I think, it, it wouldn't matter, it's probably Manchester City fans that have problems with Pep occasionally. You know what I mean? It doesn't... Yeah, yeah. There's no logic to some of it. And you have to look at the bigger picture. You know, back in July, we all pretty much said, finish 17th. As long as we, you know, implement a new style of play and we don't get relegated, then it's a successful season. We currently find ourselves 11-4-12 in the FA Cup quarterfinal. And as much as people generally, if they take a step back, will be pleased with it, there's always going to be little moans and groans about specific things, like Godson Edouard not getting as many minutes as people maybe want him to. Or, yeah. You know, there's little minor grumbles, but nothing too major. But yeah, he, he has won over the vast majority of us, including myself. I mean, I absolutely love the man. I think, yeah, I think you get that every club about why so-and-so not getting a bit more or why is this player getting that much and I think that's every single club on the planet to be honest because everyone's got an opinion nowadays as well haven't they so and they can voice it very easily <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I've made some terrible predictions in my time so I include myself in that so uh yeah well you might get to keep Conor Gallagher anyway the, the way things I don't, are going I don't, think, I don't think we can sign him I think he's you can't stuck. sign him, no. But he's I'd... stuck unless he walks and takes all of his contract money with him and doesn't accept any payment. Then he's sort of stuck there in limbo, as is everyone else. Mm. Well, yeah, time will tell. But he may it's be available. He may may become more available than he would have been otherwise. But well, in he... a strange way, if they can't sign anybody, he almost becomes less available. Nah, because they're taking back, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't really, I mean, obviously, we're talking about a situation that's got a lot more twists and turns to it, yeah. but it's just a bit mad, really. I think ultimately they will be after May, but we will see, yeah. Uh, no, I don't think any of us know how this is going to, where it's going to end up, to be honest with you. No. Uh, just based for those that haven't seen a lot of Palace this season, how is Vieira's style of play different to Hodgson? Um, the main thing I would say in terms of a core difference is I wouldn't say we're a possession-based side as such. We still tend to look to play on the counter when the opportunity presents itself. Mm. But we're a far more adept uh, side when it comes to keeping the ball. You know, right. you look at, and I've said this to a fair few people this season, um, if, if you examine our team, our defensive pairing of Mark Gay and Joachim Anderson, you've got two players there that are very, very comfortable in possession. Mark Gay is an absolute Rolls-Royce at the centre-back. I wouldn't expect it to be too long until he's in the full England side, to be honest with you. And Joachim Anderson can honestly spray 40 or 50-yard passes to feet at will when he's in the right frame of mind. And with that sort of base, we tend to build our attacks from the back a lot more. But even then, you know, you've got players like Zaha and Elise on the flanks, so you can still release them on a counter-attack with one ball, but it's less long ball or, or, you know, this grind that we used to have under Roy and more advancing the ball up the pitch quickly in an aesthetically pleasing manner. Uh, so really, you know, we, we do tend to have more possession than we used to, but we're still pretty potent when we're in the right frame of mind in terms of getting forward and, and getting bodies into the opposition penalty area. So it's like a, a refreshed and, and far more pleasing version of what Roy was doing with more of the ball and, and more energy in our general play, I think. Yeah. Who've been the star performers then? I mean, been probably quite a few of them, but um, yeah, some of them will be obvious. But who's, yeah, who's stood if, out? If I was to say three, if you look at the spine of the team, um, you know, 
you've got Gay. It's almost impossible for me to split the two centre backs in terms of importance because of what I've just said. But you can imagine the two of them. Conor Gallagher, as I've already mentioned, has been a revelation. Because I've never seen someone run with the regularity that he does and seemingly never get tired. He plays football like we would all play football if we had the legs for it and we were playing for our clubs. Do you yeah. see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's the first minute, the last minute, whether it's a dead dead end, whether it's a... There was a goal we scored against Everton. We beat them 3-1 at Selhurst. And you've got a situation where the ball is in their defensive corner. The game's about to end. And you've got him just buzzing around to the point of just being alive to everything. He picked the ball up on the edge of the box and put one absolute top corner against Jordan Pickford at the Osdale Road end. Finished the game off and won it for us. But it's this this desire to be involved in everything, regardless of the passage of play that's taking place. And I, I personally think he probably won't play beyond the age of about 28 because his body will be gone. But I just don't see how anyone can maintain the physical levels that he exhibits throughout an entire 90 minutes for more than about eight or nine years without completely running out of steam but obviously all power to him and long may it continue and then you factor in Wilfred Zaha to that who's having a fantastic goal scoring season and seems to be as happy as he's been in, in many a year playing for Patrick Vieira so there's still a fair bit of hope from us that he will agree to sign a new contract and see out his days in SE25, it's a bit of an elephant in the room still, but I, I, if I was to look at three or four players that have been pivotal for us this year, it's hard to look past those four, really. Uh, do you get tired defending Zaha on Twitter? I sort of embrace it now, to be honest with you. I, I've become... What, do you understand own, it? Cause do I understand what the guy's like? Well, no, he's one of those players where... and there's, He's not alone, there's about 200 of them in the Premier League. Well, not 200, but plenty of teams have them where you love him to play for your team but you can see why the opposition fans oh, no, I can might get riled by him because it is part of his game anyway to rile up opposition players yeah, if yeah. you boo him he'll be a better player for it the, the thing I think with Wilf and I, I, you can go back through the annals of football in history really he gets this reputation as a diver right hmm. I, if you ask any neutral fan to provide footage or proof of him diving, they will really, really, really struggle. And when they do provide proof, in inverted commas, it's debatable anyway. You know, like he's waiting for contact, he's about to get clattered, he sort of tries to avoid the contact and as a consequence goes down or something that's very, very debatable. The problem I have is that he gets angry because referees have a predetermined idea of what he's going to do. Hmm. He then gets fouled. The foul doesn't get given. He moans. People say that he's got a chip on his shoulder and the whole cycle continues. There was a, a moment away at Brentford three or four weeks ago where it was the last two or three minutes. It is a clear penalty in my mind. He's been fouled twice, tried to stay on his feet once, sort of half kept his balance, was then brought down Referee waved it away. VAR didn't even think about it. We didn't get a penalty. We didn't win the game as a consequence. And he gets this this label as someone that's got an attitude problem. But it's because, in my mind, it's been such a long-term subject of conversation now. The referees, whether they realise it or not, are genuinely biased against him in terms of giving penalties. He pretty much has to be cut in two to get a, a penalty in the, in the area. So, I mean... I'm not tired of defending him. I'll do it until he retires. But I just, I wish people would try and take off their club-related glasses and look at it from yeah. a more 
neutral perspective. It's like the Raheem Sterling thing. To use yeah, the Sterling's the nearest player, I think, because... Yeah, I mean, I, we, I saw Richard Keyes a couple of months ago saying Raheem Sterling's won the most penalties in Premier League history over the last five or six years. And I'm thinking, one, the most penalties and? is a wrong phrase in any way. Yeah. Two, someone has to win them because, like, that's... Someone's going to have won the most. doesn't matter who it is. And three... He's a player that uses pace and trickery and he's often in a penalty area playing for a side that has a ridiculously high level of possession. So, of course, he's going to be more susceptible to being brought down for penalties. It's all how you frame things. And unfortunately, players like Raheem Sterling or Zaha or whoever you might pick off the top of your head, they will be labelled with this and I will continue to defend them until the cows come home, regardless of whether they play for my club. We, we ain't got time to talk about Richard Keyes. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, no, we could devote a whole half hour to it. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're free until 5pm, we could just plow yeah. on with Richard Keyes. But yeah, I don't think we'd get anywhere. I think it's kind of stating the obvious, really, with Richard Keyes. Mm. Who who did, uh, uh, you probably know, once suggest that Pep gets in Sam Allardyce. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, deal I, I with that. That was after a one-all draw early season at Leeds. Where's it gone wrong? Get a That's after we drew at Leeds early last season, yeah. Yeah. When, when you had that little tiny blip before going on and blitzing the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, when the team was basically had no pre-season and wasn't match fit. And, and that was just... one of the best, from my memory as well, that was a fantastic game of football to watch. It was oh, hard, it was. Like, it. it was hardly, you know, a mess. And didn't it end nil-nil? No, it's one-all. One-all. We hard, were. They like were the better five. side, I think, yeah. So. It's hardly like you've let in four or five over 90 minutes. No, no. Anyway. Uh, anyway, I don't want to fall out with you, but there is one incident. A nil-nil at Selhurst Park... Boxing Day about four years ago. Well, Jason Punching. I'm not having... Was it Zaha that won that late penalty that you missed? Uh, when again, Scott Dan then took you're out saying, there. You're saying won the penalty. I, I... <laughs> never a penalty. Never a penalty. Who was it who brought him down? I can't even remember. I can't remember either. Well, you're but... saying no one brought him down, I assume. Oh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. anyway we... uh, can, can we talk about someone else? Michael Elise, if I said that oh, right. Don't, don't start me on Michael. He's, yeah, he's, you're in love with him, coming. aren't you? He's unbelievable. So he I, came I from Reading, he, yeah? Yeah, he was at Chelsea's academy before that. I think he was actually at your academy for a little while. Right. Uh, having looked at his Wikipedia page extensively as I tried to find out the smallest factors of his life. But yeah, he he's an incredible footballer. Like, it's, it's not often, particularly since we've been promoted, that I find myself watching someone in our colours that I think is genuinely too good for us. But he is. Like, this kid... I actually said to somebody the other day, if we're talking about Phil Foden being a potential Ballon d'Or winner of the future, then you have to say the same for Michael Elise because the things that he does with the ball, his comfort in possession, his poise, his finishing, his passing range, he's just a ridiculous footballer. I've never seen anything like it at Crystal Palace at the same age. Obviously, we had Will from the ages of 17, 18 coming to the first team, but to have... The level of quality that Michael Elise does at the age that he is hmm. is unprecedented as far as I'm concerned for our football club. And I genuinely don't think he'll be with us very long at all. I, I would hope that we can keep hold of him for at least one more year. But I, I don't envisage him having any problems fitting into any side in the world as long as he's given the correct sort of pathway, put it that way. Does it annoy you players all the time getting linked with supposedly bigger clubs as soon as they play well for you? Um. Yes, but at the same time, it's like... So, so I use Tyreek Mitchell as an example, okay? You've got Aaron Wan-Bissaka that's gone to Manchester United for £50 million. I'm not denying that Aaron's a great defender, although you could argue that as a Manchester City fan, you maybe don't <laughs> believe that. Tackling-wise, 
he's one of the best in the game. Personally, yeah. I don't believe that he's as good an all-round footballer as Tyree Mitchell. One's a left-back, one's a right-back, but they have obviously been compared because they yeah. both come through Crystal Palace's academy and they're both full-backs. But for me, it, it's almost like the media in this country tend to hype players up of what they see on Match of the Day or what they see on YouTube compilations rather than what actually matters. And in many ways, that's why I'm happy that Tyreek Mitchell is flying under the radar to some degree because he will just get better and better. I'm not suggesting he's as flashy as Aaron. He doesn't make these big booming challenges that you know will catch your eye. But it's like the Wilfred Zaha Yannick Bellassi debate from a few years ago. You know, Yannick Bellassi ended up going to Everton for thirty million pounds. He was nowhere near as good as Wilf, and we all knew that. But because Yannick Bellassi does things or did things back in the day that that got you know loads of interactions on social media, the general football fan base across this country will see him and think, well, that's the player we need. But, you know, I'm I'm just happy that we've got a squad at the moment that is full of young players that have this potential to grow. And I think the new long-term approach of the ownership is to rinse and repeat, if you see what I mean. If we end up selling Michael Elise for 30, 40, 50 million pounds, then we'll go to the championship or elsewhere and try and identify the next one and just become that sort of showcase for this young talent whilst also trying to creep up the division ourselves and, and make sure that we are an even more established Premier League side than we were when they signed. Mm. Now before we talk about Monday night got to talk about the prospect of reaching Wembley in the FA Cup uh, Severton at home is it not? Yeah? It is, like. yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I don't I'm want to get you ov- overly giddy but Everton are... Yeah, see but this worries me. <laughs> Well, no, I, 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 I'd be more worried if you were away to them because I still think they've got something at home. But away from home, they've been absolutely ranked. How exciting. What would it mean to you to get to Wembley? Uh, well, I mean, we were the there pounds. in 2016, obviously. We beat Watford in the semi and then we were 1-0 up against United with five, ten minutes to go. It's mm. probably most out-of-body experience I've ever had in the football ground when Jason Punchin put us in front that day, to be honest. And, you know, I, I say it a lot on social media. We're 117 years old. We haven't got a single major major trophy to our name. We've been in two FA Cup finals and lost both to Manchester United, having been in front in both of them, by the way. So, you know, from our point of view, the Wembley appearance is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. But we've been there for the playoff final in 2013. We've been there twice in 2016. To win it would just be, I, I can't, you wouldn't see me for a week. I mean, you don't see me anyway. But I'll I'd, I'd <laughs> hear from you, yeah. Yeah, I'd be gone. I, I, I just, I'd occasionally pop up on social media amidst some sort of madness for about a week or two. I don't even know. I can't even begin to tell you what it means to me. It's, it's obviously it's a strange conversation to have with a Manchester City fan in 2022 because you've had so much success in the last 10 or 15 years. But you go back to, I don't know, how it felt when you were knocking around against the Stockports and all the rest of it in, in League One. And, you know, having that prospect of, of reaching Wembley and potentially going all the way is just, I can't even contemplate it, to be honest. Well, yeah, it all started for City in 2011 with the FA Cup. So, exactly. That's you know, the day I, that's in, implanted in my brain for the rest of my life. So, apart from anything else as well, forget the trophy, which would obviously be mind blowing for us given the fact we have none. Right? If we got into Europe proper, mm. Europe, I'm talking group stage, the prospect of being able to follow my club in European cities, although I genuinely think being Palace, World War Three will kick off and it probably won't be allowed to happen. <laughs> yeah. Because we were in Europe once before, by the way. I don't know if you're aware of this. We finished third, right? right? And we weren't allowed to play because of Heisel. 
Mm. And that in itself is something that yeah. is always, from a Palace fan's point of view, it's like, so we qualified and we weren't allowed. Yeah. And that's just sort of like, oh, well, better luck, better luck next time. That was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, a long, long time. And, and it, you throw in all sorts of different things over the years. There's just this assumption that something will go wrong. But, I mean, if Patrick Vieira won us the FA Cup in his first year as manager, one, he'd probably get poached and we'd have to look for somebody else. And two, yeah, you wouldn't see me on socials for a good while because I'd be off somewhere in an alcoholic coma probably. I mean, if you're travelling, if you're going to away games around Europe, then the Europa League is every bit as good as the Champions League. Almost better. Yeah, I mean, some of the trips City went on. Denmark, Faroe Islands, mm. <laughs> uh, I, I just, total, I, 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 <coughs> total network solutions, less glamorous, to be yeah, fair. We'd, we'd probably draw hearts or something. Yeah, well, that's it, a group state. If, if, yeah, I don't know if there's a playoff, I don't know what the format's up. I think if you anymore. win the FA Cup, you just automatically qualify, I think. Yeah. It may depend on who wins the other cup and who finishes where in the league. But I mean, we'll have to, that's a bridge we'll cross when we come to it. But I remember when we went 1-0 up in that final in 2016, apart from the fact that I was just a bit lost for breath and, and couldn't really get my bearings, I just thought to myself, we might be going away in Europe. That was all I could think. Yeah, so yeah. The prospect of it actually happening is something I don't want to get too carried away with. And obviously, you look at Everton, we're at home, we've beaten them at Sellers already this season, they've got bigger fish to fry. It's almost too easy for us to get to Wembley. You know what I mean? There's, there's too much of a, a sense of, well, something will go wrong because it's, it's too obvious that we're going to get through, if you see what I'm saying. If you, let's say you met City in the final and lost, mm. would you still get into Europe or did change the rules? I don't know. Because yeah. we lost to United and I think they were top four that year and we didn't. We didn't, now. I'm sure they no. used to do that, but I'm not, I don't know. I think because of the conference, we may well get yeah. into the UEFA conference. I don't know. Because when we obviously in 16, the conference didn't exist. I'd take it all day long, by the way. You've got Spurs fans laughing it off. I'd cut an arm off to be in the UEFA. Oh, yeah. I mean, two trips in the Europa to Germany were just amazing. Yeah. Hamburg, I honestly Cologne, can't Gelsenkirchen. Yeah. If it's we played like a Dortmund and got done 7-0, I wouldn't care. Yeah, Denmark. Just, I, yeah, Denmark all over the place. Just amazing experience. Yeah, I don't think I've not gone to many of them for financial reasons, but I know from friends, obviously. Mm. Some of the well, I've already told my missus. I'm like, look, if we get in Europe, we probably won't get there again. So mm. savings, bosh. I don't. And, it's, it's not, yeah, you know, it's, it's not even a thing for me. City fans that talk about go to Denmark and place like that more than they do any trip to Madrid nowadays because it's almost become part of the course though because the football the was thing. yeah nothing to do with the football it was the trip uh, mm. so. whereas now you know next year you're going to be doing the same sort of stuff yeah well get a Champions League and get Shakhtar Donetsk uh, <laughs> 17 times in 20 years it, it loses its uh, appeal you might struggle so. with that one from now on <laughs> well yeah maybe not in the future uh, right Monday night then now obviously you go for the double here <laughs> Yeah, I know, it's a bit mad. What was, the, what was the secret for you of how you beat City? Because uh, let's be honest, when City were down to 10 men, they were already struggling by that stage anyway. Can yeah, you I, pinpoint I, what it was that, yeah, how Vieira won that game? It, I mean, obviously, <laughs> there aren't many Man City fans that are like this, but after the game, a fair few of them were going, well, we've done a 10 men, what do you expect? And I'm thinking, well, you're at home against Crystal Palace, like... Obviously, it makes a difference, mm. but we were still fantastic that day. Mm. And the thing is, with that red card, Zaha was away. Like, I'm not suggesting he would have scored, but there's a high chance that he would have done. So, you, you know, it, it had 
all sorts of ramifications had he not brought him down anyway. And I think, depending on whether or not you believe in the XG myth, we actually won that game on XG away from home, which is quite a sizable achievement for us as well. So, as I sort of mentioned earlier in relation to the change in playing style, it wasn't overly different from the way that, that Roy Hodgson tended to set us up against uh, City. And of course, we beat uh, yourselves at the Etihad under him as well. So, I have always thought it's quite intriguing that Pep Guardiola speaks so glowingly about Crystal Palace. I actually said this morning, I think it was on the Palace podcast, that I think we almost represent to him the absolute definition of the strength and depth that exists in the Premier League because we're never a club that are in the European places, but we're a club that can take points off all the top sides if we play to our full ability. And I think he is well aware of that. So, I mean, I'm not expecting anything from Monday night. I think it would be foolish to say that we can, you know, expect anything. But there's a definite sense of a free hit to it, particularly given the recent form that we've had in the league. I think we picked mm. up seven points from our last nine, which is pretty much, uh, you know, extinguished any worries about looking over our shoulders at the relegation zone. So we can really go into this game and, and try and play it at full speed and, and see how we can go. Now, do you think the game will go then to start? Do you think... Palace will sit deep and really... I mean, City, this is... You can get City with pace on the counter-attack because we play a high line. Do you, yeah, do you I see mean, that? Do you see being cautious, Fiera, and just hoping to hit us on the break? Well, it's funny. Like, obviously, you're not exactly the same side as Liverpool at all. But if you look at the way that we approached that game a few weeks ago, where we got pretty done over in <laughs> the last couple of minutes with that penalty that they got given. Seriously, after that Everton game that City were... Pretty fortunate to win, let's be honest. Uh, how are Liverpool fans can speak up after that Palace game? But, yeah, that's social media. But, uh, you. you know, the thing is, the scoreline was already 2-1. So you've got a load of 14-year-olds with Firmino as their profile picture going, well, we were just 1-2-1 anyway. The fact is... No, we, the bang, first we goal, We banging the it? door in a very big way prior to that penalty. Um, and obviously, it got reviewed for about 48 minutes by the VAR official and everyone else in the booth and, and got given their way but in, in many ways <laughs> Palace under Vieira don't really know when they're beaten mm. often it takes us until the second half to get going which is extremely frustrating not so much in recent games but for the most part of this season I think we've dropped a ridiculous amount of points in the last 10 minutes we were nil-nil with Chelsea not so long ago and, and we let in a goal to Kai Havertz in the 89th there's there's a, a whole list of games that we've dropped points is that, in is that concentration or fatigue or the, the Havertz goal in particular was one where it just sort of floated over from the right to the left and Mitchell sort of lost track of it a bit. Havertz volleyed it in. But, I mean, we were 2-1 up against Brighton. We ended up conceding in the 94th minute because Vicente Gaita put a goal kick straight down the middle and they ping-ponged it back straight over the defenders' heads. Uh, we had the last kick of the game away at Arsenal 2-1 up. We can see there. I mean, I could go through a whole list of, of moments, really. But the, the main thing from a Palace point of view is that we are never really out of games unless we're probably three or four goals behind. Even against West Ham a few uh, weeks ago, we were 3-0 down with 20 to go and almost came back to get a 3-3 free, free draw. So as long as we can remain you know, relatively compa uh, competitive in the fixture... I think there's going to be, you know, chances for us, particularly in the last 20 or 30 minutes if we're only a goal behind, where potentially we can cause you all sorts of problems on that counter, unless you decide to sit deep, which is unlikely. Unlikely, yes. <laughs> Very unlikely. Do, do you think it's an advantage to be playing on a Monday night? 
under the lights um, and all that. I, I, I hate Monday yeah, night games, but no, it is what it is. Don't get me wrong, we get a lot of, I suppose, deserved praise for the atmosphere that we can create. Um, but at the same time, when it comes to a team like Manchester City, if you do start on the front foot and you get a couple of goals in the first 45 minutes, it becomes incredibly difficult. I think the longer the fixture goes on and as long as it's close sort of going into the final 20 or 30 minutes, then there's every chance that we could nick a point or even take all three if we're level. Um, but, you know, it's all a case of how we approach that first hour and making sure that we don't have any defensive lapses before, you know, the 70th minute rolls around, really. If there is a weak point then in Palace, what is it that City could exploit? Set pieces, without a doubt. They're really set pieces off. It's mm. particularly off corners. It's just... I, I don't necessarily think that it's a mentality issue, but I, I do wonder how exactly we are going about defensive set-piece training because I think it may well be in double figures now the number of goals we've conceded off corners this season. I mean, Mark Gay is not the tallest, it has to be said. Um, he's not bad in the air, although he has a tendency to jump with his arms up, which is infuriating. Um, Joachim Anderson is not bad, but you look at Tyreek Mitchell, you look at Nathaniel Klein, they're not big lads. Uh, I think a large part of why Czech Koyate has played such a big role for Patrick Vieira this year in the midfield is because of his strength and his physicality, because of that need to have more of a, a physical presence in the box defending set pieces. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not really a, a key part of Manchester City's game anyway. But if you are able to put a lot of balls in dangerous areas from corners or from close free kicks, then there's every chance that we could be undone in that particular way. Mm. No, it's not our... I wouldn't say it's our strong point, but we've actually started scoring from a few this season. So, so I'm a bit... It's a bit of a grey area for me whether City are now better at set pieces and mm, or whether it's just a bit of a purple pack. I do have a habit of putting crosses in when they get frustrated as well, City, which maybe, yeah, I don't know, with positioning, because you're not you're not putting those crosses in. When it's not a set piece, you're just putting it into very small players. Yeah. I mean City. to be honest with you, then But if it's a set piece, then obviously we can bring defenders up who are much better mm, in the air. So if you've got a crowded box, we tend to struggle with the whole zonal slash man marking of, of set pieces and making sure that we've got the right men on the right players. But you know, in terms of in play crosses, we tend to be all right. Mm. And I think most of the time when we've taken uh, points from you, particularly away from home, we've often seen Man City putting all sorts of crosses in and just getting them cleared. So hopefully that's the case again for us. Yeah. Uh, dare I ask you for a score prediction? Um, I'll, given the fact that I'm a Palace fan on a, on a Man City podcast, I'll go 1-1. I, think. <laughs> I, can't, I can't have us losing and I can't have us winning. So, you know, it's one of those. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised but I think it's going to be a really, really tricky game. But because I'm a City fan hosting a City podcast, <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to be optimistic and go for a tight 2-1 uh, win to City. So, Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, how do you see, as a, a neutral, I think you're a neutral, <laughs> the title race going down to the wire? or um, A few weeks ago, I would have had you finishing nine, ten points clear. Yeah, I think that... The sheer, and I'm not coming on a Man City podcast trying to praise Liverpool for the sake of it, but the relentlessness of their performances of late is genuinely something that I think is you know worthy of praise because it, as much as you can say you know it's easy to do when you're chasing, you've just got to win every game. Seeing your main rivals in Man City go and, and smash teams regularly 
and yet still keeping up that relentless pace of, of chasing it is something that I think deserves a fair bit of praise. And I'm, I'm not suggesting they'll overhaul it because I think if you look at the strength in depth of the two squads and, and tactically how Guardiola's got you set up this year, you probably will have more than enough and, and probably will end up winning it by five or six points. But I think it's testament to their longevity in this title race that they haven't given up the ghost yet and they're still trying to push you all the way as much as they can. So, yeah, I, I would imagine you will win it, but not by as wide a margin as I did expect. Mm. I, think, I think some of the results have masked in different performances for both sides. I think there's turn, yeah, twists and turns, yeah, because I, I just can't see both teams being relentless like they were the other year when it, they just both kept winning right until the end and City won by a no, point. No, I, I think from my point of view at least, you know, I, and this, this may be me going off my own personal view rather than statistics to back them up, but I, still, I see City as a side that can win as easily at home and away Whereas mm. with Liverpool, I think Anfield is obviously Anfield and, and they feel very, very comfortable in putting teams under pressure there and everything else. But I think over the course of the last couple of months, it may well be Manchester City's ability to blow away, say, a Crystal Palace or a Southampton or a West Ham away from home rather than Liverpool just having to grind out these victories week after week. But obviously I might just be found to be talking complete rubbish there. <laughs> well, yeah, we will see. Well, we'll yeah, I mean, we lost at home to Palace. That home to Southampton was pretty poor performance, I think, as well. So, yeah, it's not been not been perfect at home for City. So, uh, we're almost out of time. So, like, do bullet points. Uh, I'm going to ask. I was going to miss it, but I've got to ask. Uh, who from the City? Oh, I was just going to say, if you could have one player from City, who would complement the Palace team the most? Um. It's very hard because of the quality that exists yeah. across the entire... I would, you can't really go beyond Kevin De Bruyne, I don't think. You know, given his just longevity at the very top and the mm. fact that he's so, so good when he's on his game. I mean, you can look at all sorts of players and obviously I'm not trying to do down any other City player when saying that, but you look at what we need, particularly if Conor Gallagher is to return to the land of the walled-off financial worlds of Chelsea. You know, if he was to come in from August on and, and be that player for us in the middle of the park, it would just really aid the likes of Zaha and, and Elise either side of him and, and cause chaos, I would imagine. Mm. It's getting on a bit, though, so... Yeah, I don't think... Don't factor that in. No spring chicken, so... Well, we'll have Phil Foden's there. Yeah, he's got more years <laughs> than him, so... <laughs> and which, uh, which Palace player could... I mean, you could just name a striker in this season. We, yeah, don't, we don't actually have any, but it's the one player that you could see really fitting into the City team. I, and I feel yeah. that Michael Elise probably will be a Man City player before the summer of 2023. Really? Yeah, I really do. Like, oh. I put it, Well, I say that, it's not like I've been on the phone with Pep Guardiola and he's told me. <laughs> but I, he has... Every, I'm not... I, I almost sound, I suppose, like I'm trying to do a sales job here. I'm not. I want him to stay at Crystal Palace until he's 47 years old. But he's yeah. so good. Like, I, I don't think people... When I said this on Twitter the other day, he's getting quite a good reputation across different fan bases already. Mm. People outside Palace and Reading have no idea how good this kid actually is. Like, oh, watch him live and just think to yourself, that he's just ridiculous. And if you put him in City's side, he would not miss a beat. In fact, if you look at the second goal that we scored at the Etihad in that win, right? he came off the bench, he carried the ball up the pitch, 
he ended up getting the ball played back to him. And it's only, you can go back and revisit it or whatever on YouTube or wherever you might find the highlights. The ball rolls towards him and he just lays it into Conor Gallagher's path with the most calm touch you've ever seen. And it's, it's just perfect. And it's such a small thing, but it just sums up Michael Elise, who at that point was 19 years old, mm. about to lay on an assist to win the game away at Manchester City. And it's not even a fault to him. You know, he completely backs himself in his ability. He doesn't get ruffled. He doesn't, you know, argue with refs. He's just, he's a ridiculous footballer. And if he went to Manchester City, I'm sure you would absolutely love him. So, yeah, I would I would say that. He would compliment any side in the world, particularly one that's run by Pep Guardiola and going for titles every year. Well, don't take this the wrong way. I hope he doesn't prove that on, on Monday. Yeah, but I'll start, I'll start the rumour yeah, yeah. later today. Having, uh, right. having playing a terrible game on Monday and then, and then picking back up, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, well, time has defeated us, I'm afraid. Uh, thanks very much for coming on, Dan. Really enjoyed that. No problem. Good insight. Uh, but I hope you don't love your football club on Monday night. <laughs> people on Twitter will understand that. Others may I love not. the way you've, you've, you've left out one very important word there. Oh, yeah. go on. No, no. This is the swear word that goes with that tweet, which I won't necessarily <laughs> I don't know whether it's an 18 plus podcast, but yeah. yeah I might we're... be concerned that one day someone's going to come across it from the powers that be behind the scenes of Twitter and decide to suspend my account again for indiscriminate <laughs> use of the F word, but we'll see. Yeah, well, I'm on my second account, so I don't even yeah. know why I lost the first one, so. Who knows? Probably something to do with Wilfred Zaha and diving. No, it was probably something to do with a football journalist and sarcasm. Uh, <laughs> I've narrowed it down to a list of 17, so yeah. we'll see. Miguel Delaney. Uh, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, take care and, yeah, good luck with your, yeah, everything you do in the future. My pleasure. Uh, and thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, take care as well. Stay safe. Have a great weekend. And as always, up the blues.